We're going to continue uh, with our Advent readings that we've had each Sunday. Like I said earlier, this is the fourth Sunday of Advent. It's the Sunday which we light the pink candle, adding it to the three purple candles that we've been talking about and sharing about. And so the Marx family uh, who've joined Emmaus recently and so thankful for their family and their desire to serve, they're going to do our Advent reading for us this morning. So I think, guys, thank you very much for being a part of this time of worship. Sure. I uh, asked Owen, are you sure you want all my kids up here? <laughs> Hopefully um, they won't be too much of a distraction. They're a joy for us. Let's read this together. Today is the fourth Sunday in the celebration of Advent, the final Sunday in preparation for the celebration of Christmas. So far, we have lit candles which represent the hope and peace and love found in Christ. The pink candle we light today represents the exceeding joy of Jesus Christ. It is overwhelming when we ponder the gift of God's Son and <laughs> is the byproduct of that revelation. Through him, we have been redeemed and reconciled to God. Through him, we have power for daily living. Through him, we have a hope of a future kingdom of peace. Through him, we display love and proclaim the hope and peace of salvation to others. Jesus told us that he came to give abundant life and that we could experience the fullness of joy <laughs> by following his commandments. Let us decide on the final Sunday of preparation for Christmas to live our lives as ex expressions of hope and peace and love and joy in a world that needs so desperately to know God in the person of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Luke 2, 8 through 11 says, And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, an angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were very much afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. May we rejoice in the Lord always. All right, if you would, take your Bible and turn to Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30 is where we're going to be in just a few minutes. In sports language, we're going to call it a little bit of an audible, and we'll move the uh, offering to the, uh, to the end of the service during the, during the time of announcements. I missed my cue uh, for that, so I uh, wasn't paying attention, but was so caught up in the, uh, caught up in the music, I, I missed what was going on. But we're going to be looking this morning as we continue thinking about thinking about how the Lord teaches us in the book of Proverbs what it is to walk according to his way, to live the life that he's created us to live. Proverbs chapter 30 this morning, the theme is going to be humility. What does it look like to live out humility? 
And we're going to look at Proverbs 30 here in just a few minutes, but what I want us to do as we continue in worship this morning, and I know we've done a lot of up and down, uh, keeps us kind of focused on a cold morning, keeps us warm on a cold morning, but we're going to stand together right now, and we're going to have a time of responsive reading. So if you would stand with me right now, we're not going to read Proverbs chapter 30 right now. What we're going to do is we're going to read from Luke chapter 1, and the verses are going to be up on the screen, and we're reading Mary's song, the Magnificat, uh, is sometimes it's called in, in certain churches. We're going to read this responsibly. I'll read the words on the top. Oh, maybe I'll read the words on the top. There we go. I'll read the words on the top in italics if you'll read the words underneath. And as we read through this beautiful song, think about the theme of humility as it relates to the life that we're called to live and as it relates to the story of Christmas. So I'll read on top, you read on bottom. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has helped his servant Israel and remembrance of his mercy. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. So you may not know this about me, or you may already know this, but I'm a little bit obsessed with the number three. Uh, not healthy obsessed, like I would wear number three on my has-been jersey, but uh, like over-the-top OCD obsessed with, with the number three. I like to think that it's a reflection of God as Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that all good things are shaped by, by the number three. I like to think that, but I think it's probably just an unhealthy uh, psychological problem. But I love, I love when things fit. I'm fascinated by numbers. Uh, now, if you start taking numbers and you look at the Bible and you look at too many internet sites, you can find all kinds of terrible conspiracy theories and ways that numbers are used. And then I got to Proverbs chapter 30 this week and was looking at it and was really let down because you realize Proverbs 30 is actually based on the number four. Um, what happens with the book of Proverbs is you have Proverbs one through nine that form the introduction to the book. And we've looked at most of the chapters and all of the major themes in Proverbs chapters one through nine. And you might think, well you skipped 10 through 29. Well, the way those Proverbs work are they're individual sayings that are related to the major themes that we've already looked at. So we're not gonna look at 10 to 29 in detail. That's just going to be, as you read the Bible, because of what we've studied together, you have the foundation to make sense of those Proverbs in the, in the middle. So there's one through nine, there's 10 to 29, and then 30 and 31 function as a conclusion. They're, they're grouped together even in four parts. The first half of 30, second half of 30, first half of 31, second half of 31. It's set up in these groups of four. 
And then you start looking at chapter 30 and you see the number four all over the place. These, these words aren't gonna be on the screen, but if you're just looking at a hard copy of the Bible or you have it on your phone in front of you, you look there in Proverbs 30, verse four, and you find four questions that start with the word who. And then you go down to verses six through 10 and you can find four different things you're supposed to not do or four things you're supposed to reject. And then you go through 11 to 14 and it lists four groups of people who aren't doing the right thing. And then you go down to verse 15 and you find out that the leech has two daughters, but then you find there are three things that are never satisfied, four never say enough. And that three but four pattern is in 15, it's in 18, it's in 21, it's in 24, it's in 29. You see the number four just over and over and over again. You're like, why would he do this? What's going on? Well, this is a form of writing that was pretty common in the wisdom literature of the time is they would say three but four. And the way that was, would, they would do with that is it was framing the fullness of a topic and it provided consistency of what was being talked about. And the thread that runs through chapter 30 is the thread of humility. And so everything we're looking at this morning is about this idea of humility. Now I know that some of you don't struggle with humility. You're so humble you don't even say the H at the beginning of the word, it's just humble. So those are the people you know who are really humble if they don't say the H at the beginning. But the, for the rest of us who really struggle with what does it look like to be an individual? What does it look like to be a church that is known for humility? God help us that we would never be known as a prideful church that we would never be known as prideful people, but when people looked at us, they would see the marks of humility. So what we're gonna see this morning, and if you have a copy of the bulletin that you got when you came in, that worship guide, you can turn over the back and you can see, we're gonna look at the path to humility, a picture of humility, and the product of humility. And yes, there are three points. So uh, even in a chapter dedicated to the number four, I still couldn't get away from three. The path to humility, how do you get there? The picture of humility, what does it look like? The product of humility, why does it matter? Proverbs chapter 30, verse one, here's what it says. Proverbs chapter 30, verse one. The words of Agur, son of Jaca, the oracle. Now you can tell, this is gonna be an interesting ride. What in the world is going on here? Well this name Agur, this is the only place in scripture that we see this name. And we find out just a little bit later in this verse that one of the things we know about Agur, and we, don't, we know almost nothing about him, but one thing we do know is he was not an Israelite. So not every proverb in the Bible comes from Solomon, and not even every proverb comes from an Israelite, from one of God's covenant people coming down in physical descent from Abraham. What we see here is that this wisdom is never meant to be confined to one group of people. It's always God's truth is truth. All truth is God's truth. That's what they taught us to say in, in college, that everything that is true, everything that is wise, is not confined to one group of people. It's true because of who God is and that he is the ruler of the entire world and the entire universe. And so with Agur here, we have someone coming along who is going to provide this truth. And it says the oracle, so the message that he is going to give, 
what is the message he's going to give? Well, at the end of verse 1, it says, The man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Now, that's the English Standard Version, which for some of you may be your life motto. I am weary, O God, I am weary and worn out. The difficulty there, the difficulty there is when you're looking at this particular group of verses, and it happens all throughout the Old Testament, but it's hard to distinguish in the Hebrew language that the Old Testament's written in, it's hard to distinguish if a person's name is being used or if the description of that person's name is being met. So in English, if some of you like to look up those books or websites that give the meaning of your name, if you like to go out and find, well, this is my name and this is what it really means, take that idea and multiply it 10,000 times over and that's how important it was in the ancient world to know what your name meant. A person's name was just not their name, there was always a description or a meaning behind it. So if you are reading out of the New American Standard Version, if you're reading out of the King James Version, if you're reading out of the New International Version, what yours may say is something like, the man declares to Ithiel, to Ithiel and Eucal. <laughs> so what's going on there is we're not sure if the first lines here were meant to name these people's names that Agur is writing to, or if he's using these words to describe the situation, saying, Ithiel meant weary. And so is he using Ithiel as a person's name he's writing to, or is he using it as a term for weariness? There's no real way to know what's going on except, that the fact, uh, except for the fact that weariness fits the context really well of what we're going to find out. Agur seems to portray someone who is worn out seeking after wisdom. Some of you know what it's like to feel physically tired because you're searching for answers in life. Maybe somebody's sick in your family and you're searching for answers. Maybe you've been searching for a church and you keep going and going. It's physically exhausting to do that. Maybe, and we're not being melodramatic here, maybe you're literally searching for the meaning of your life. You're at a place in life, you need purpose, you need meaning, and you're worn out trying to get that. This is the idea that's being portrayed here from Agur. So look in verse two. After he says, I'm weary and worn out, in verse two, the English Standard Version says, surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. What you're starting to see here is the first step to humility is when we recognize our human condition. Agur at this point is admitting that he on his own does not have wisdom or understanding or knowledge. Any of the words that were used in Proverbs chapter one to describe a wise man, Agur says that does not describe me. On my own, I have nothing to bring. This word stupid, uh, kids don't say stupid at home. I know it shows up in the Bible. It's not a good word, but don't, don't use that. I don't know why they use that translation here. This word stupid here, the word behind it is just the word brutish or brute. In other words, an animal. In our language, what, what Agur is saying is he's saying, I'm as dumb as an ox. That's essentially the idea that's coming across here. I don't know anything on my own. 
The positive form of this is Agar is in a position where he realizes his human condition. He realizes he doesn't have anything to bring to the table as far as wisdom goes. He needs that wisdom to be revealed to him, to come from somewhere else. Here's the caution that goes with that. The caution that goes with that is if you have a personality in which you beat yourself up a lot, maybe you have a low view of yourself, Maybe you're just constantly saying, I'm not worth anything, I don't matter, nobody cares about me. That's not the same thing that's going on in this situation right here. There's a healthy form in which we recognize our human condition. We recognize that we don't have all the answers, that we are not wise in of ourselves. There's a dangerous version in which we just continue to beat ourselves up and say we don't matter, nobody cares about me, I'm not any good. This is one of the reasons I think that the preaching of somebody like Joel Osteen is so appealing to people. Or you find TV preachers that over and over again say, you're special, you matter, you can do it. And we say, oh man, that just sounds wrong. Well, but that is so appealing in a world where so many people beat themselves up or feel beat up or feel weary or feel worn out. Teenagers, over 25% of teenagers in a recent study had been diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. In the last decade, depression rates have tripled among teenagers. Teenagers live because of social media in a world where you take all the regular anxieties of adolescence and then you add on top of that this feeling of being enmeshed in other people's lives through social media and through technology, and what you have are these depression rates and these anxiety rates that are really running out of control at this point. And as a result of that, people feel beat up, they feel like they don't have anything to bring to the table, they feel weary, they feel worn out, and out of that brokenness, that's where things like cutting, that's where things like unhealthy relationships, that's where all of these destructive behaviors start to, to show up because we feel in our human condition we don't matter and so you're always looking for a way out of that. The danger is that in our human condition we would just continue to seek human answers. But the path to wisdom is the path that Agar takes and that's when he recognizes God's perfect power. Look in verse four here, in verse four, so after he realizes, I'm just dumb as an ox, I don't have anything to bring to the table, in verse four, his eyes turn upward. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Well, not Agur, but God. Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Not me, but God. Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Not me, but God. Who has established all the ends of the earth? Well, obviously no one other than God. By looking to creation, and in this section here in verse four, you get a lot of reflection of the book of Job. You can take these questions and start to see them play out in the book of Job, but what's happening here is as Agur looks to creation, and he realizes he could have not done any of that on his own, there had to be a power greater than humanity making those things happen. And when he turns from himself and he looks to the power of God, he starts to walk down that path of wisdom. But look what happens in verse five. There's this there's strange transition that happens in verse five. Or actually, it's the end of verse four. In the end of verse four, after establishing God's existence, 
He says, what is his name? Well, remember, Agur is not an Israelite. So he doesn't trace his biological lineage back to Abraham. He wouldn't have been considered one of the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What is his name? He's establishing with his questions, he's establishing his place among the covenant people of God. He's wanting to say, I associate with the God who has revealed his name. I associate with the people of Yahweh. Then it gets really strange. He says, not only what is his name, but what is his son's name? Surely you know. What he's doing here is in Proverbs, he's working out a riddle. Now, I don't know how many of you enjoy riddles, how many of you enjoy magic shows, maybe you watch Penn and Teller's Fullest show, this whole idea, what happens in life where there's this riddle out there, this thing going on that we realize we can't solve on our own? How do you solve these type of riddles? Proverbs is full of these. What's going on when it says, what is his name? One possibility, and I think it's a good possibility, is you have here a prophecy of the coming Messiah. There's, there's no doubt something like that is happening. But it's not just that. This would be a bad misreading to say this is nothing other than a prophecy of the coming Messiah. Probably what is happening here is where it says, what is his son's name? The answer there is actually Agur. Agur is inserting himself as someone who realizes he's not a part of Israel, who realizes he doesn't have the wisdom to bring to the table, but he sees God's power, he sees God's goodness, and he says, what is his name? Well, his name is Yahweh, the Lord God. What is his son's name? Oh my, that's me. I'm considered one of his sons. Why? Because I'm seeking after his wisdom. You start to trace this line that goes from Jacob, Back at the beginning of verse four, if you look really quickly at the beginning of verse four, it says, who has ascended to heaven and come down? There's a story that most of our Sunday school kids in here could tell you about. There's a story in the book of Genesis about a ladder that went from heaven to earth. And Jacob was able to see these angels that were going back and forth on this ladder between heaven and earth. So who has ascended up to heaven and come down. Well, we know that's only done through the power of God and it's situated on the person of Jacob. Jacob was then named Israel. Israel signifying the people of God. The people of God, Agur is now a part of because he's turned to God. God's covenant plan would go through Jesus. Then all the people who are followers of Jesus are a part of the same covenant people. So what's happening here is every one of us who says, I've looked at Jesus for wisdom. I've looked at Jesus for life. We can insert our names at the end of that question in verse four. What is his name? His name is God. What is his son's name or his daughter's name, his child's name? Everyone who has turned to him and re recognized his goodness and his power and his wisdom. And it goes on in verse five and it says, how do I know this is true? Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. So we find that the path of wisdom is recognizing our human condition, then recognizing God's power, and then that takes us to the third thing. The third thing is when we recognize the truth of God's word, we have to guard our own mouths. The story of the book of Proverbs is you can tell if a person is humble or not by what comes out of their mouth. 
and we know that's disturbing for every one of us when we think about some of the things we've said over the years or maybe the things we've said in the last few hours and we think, do my words, does the guarding of my mouth signify someone who understands my human condition and understands God's power? You find here in verse six, what does it say? In verse six it says, do not add to his words lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. If I'm guarding my mouth to show that I'm a person of humility, and here's the God of the universe who has spoken, and I have something to add to that, that has to be the greatest form of pride imaginable at that point, is God has spoken. You know the person where someone gets up and gives a speech, or they say something, and then there's always the person who has something to add afterward. And you're just thinking, oh my word, like wh- why would you do that? Why not let that happen? Just leave it right there. But they're so smart that no matter what the topic is, whatever is said, they always have something to add at the end. One of the tests for humility, and this is kind of painful to apply to our lives, but one of the tests of humility is do I always have to have the last word in the conversation? Or do I always have to have the last word in a situation? So there's a debate, there's questions, there's someone giving a presentation. Do I always have to add something at the end? If I do, then in my heart there's probably something going on that's very prideful that says I always have something to add. A mark of humility is that you can just let it lie and say, you know what, we can leave it right there. That was a good point. We trust the Lord. Let's go on. So the first thing is guarding our mouths against that type of pride. Then it goes on in verse seven, and it says, two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Agur recognizes a relationship between humility and telling the truth. If God's word is true, then his people should be a people who are speaking the truth. Lying, according to the book of Proverbs, is actually a form of pride. Now, we don't have time to kind of tease that out all the way, and we don't always think, it, think of it like that. But lying is a form of pride because it's a form of saying, I don't trust the truth, which is another way of saying, I don't trust God's truth. So if we're always manipulating the truth, if we're always trying to get around the truth, someone who is a perennial liar, at the core of that, Scripture says, is pride that's allowing that to happen, that's giving, giving rise to those type of words. So we're guarding against pride, we're guarding against lying, and then you get down into the middle of verse 8, and it says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that's needful for me. In other words, just give me... Uh, it's kind of the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us just what we need. Because in verse 9 it says, Lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So what Agur is doing here is he's trying to guard his mouth against two extremes. One is to deny the existence of God. And the second is to say words that would dishonor God or dishonor God's reputation. So on one side of it, he says, I don't want to be too wealthy. I don't want to have too much because if I have too much, I'll think I did this and I'll deny my need for God. On the flip side, I don't want to be completely poor and without anything because otherwise I'll find myself stealing 
and I'll show that I don't really trust God and I'll be living and dishonoring him. So what he's doing, he's trying to guard against these two extremes. What's the answer to that? It's to be a person who gives thanks. If you have much and your response to that is, God, thank you for this. I realize it's all from you. Let me trust you with it. That's a response of praise. If you have little and you say, God, thank you that you're in control. Thank you that you're gonna see me through this time. Thank you that you're gonna provide what I need. That is a sign of humility and a sign of praise. So the sign of humility is giving thanks. The sign of pride is that either we deny God or we dishonor him with our words. Then we go to verse 11, actually verse 10. Verse 10 says, do not slander a servant to his master lest he curse you and you be held guilty. What's gonna happen here in 10 to 14 is it's gonna go from our words toward God or about God, and it's going to focus on our words toward other people. So verse 10 says, do not slander a servant to his master lest he curse you and you be held guilty. This is using your words to tear someone else down. Specifically in verse 10, this is an adult form of tattletelling. This is the thing that you get so frustrated with your kids about, but this is the adult form of it. This is where you go and get involved in somebody else's situation, somebody else's business, to tear them down when it was none of my business to begin with. This just says, don't use your words to tear anybody down, and especially not if it was none of your business to begin with. Verse 11, there are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. A form of pride in Proverbs is I don't need generational wisdom. I don't need my parents, I don't need my grandparents, I don't need anybody to tell me how to live. That's the type of pride that shows itself up, or shows up throughout Proverbs. Humility says that I will respect my father and I will bless and honor my mother because I realize that that's part of God's plan for wisdom coming into my life. Kids that are here, kids do everything you can to speak good into the life of your mom. I know a thing or two about moms. I have one and I'm married to one and I know that they're weary and they're exhausted and throughout the day they're constantly taken from and we use our words to pour back into their lives, to bless them, to speak well of them. As a kid, one of the best things you can do is to speak well, to speak good words back into the life of your mom because there's a good chance you've worn her out during the day at some point. So so speak good, speak well back into her life. Verse 12, uh, actually not verse 12, skip down to verse 14. Verse 14, there are those whose teeth are swords, whose fanes are knives, to devour the poor from off the earth, the needy from among mankind. This is using our words to kick people when they're down. This is the idea uh, that you're using your words to tear down the very people who need help the most. A sign of pride is someone who speaks badly of those who are most in need. A sign of humility is someone who defends the poor, who defends the needy. And this is particularly important in our economic climate, in our political climate. What do my words about those who are poor and needy reflect about my own heart. 
Not what do they reflect about the political climate, the economic realities. What do they reflect about my heart when I speak about those who are poor, when I speak about those who are needy? What does that say? Am I tearing them down or am I defending them and, and, and coming to care for them in their time of need? So this is all about, these verses are showing us how the path of humility is about guarding our mouth. And then number four, because it had to be a number four, number four is how do we guard our eyes? The other path to humility is not only how we guard our mouth, but it's how we guard our eyes. Look back up in verse eight for a second. If you look back up in verse eight, after it talks about falsehood and lying, there's those words there about, give me neither poverty nor riches, feed me with the food that is needful for me. Needful being the key word there. So when I look at something, and kids, if you are let's say 12 and younger, sixth grade and younger. Pay, pay really close attention to this part, especially around Christmas time. So let's say that you go into a store and you see something on the shelf and you don't have it. Do you look at that object and think, I have to have it? Or if you go into your room and you look at all the things that are scattered in your room, all the toys, all the things you have, and you look at all those things scattered in your room, do you ever think in your mind, this isn't enough, I need more? And I use that as a very passive aggressive way to speak to the adults because uh, that's not a 12 and under problem. That, that, that's a human problem. Do we look at something that we don't have and say, I need that, when we really don't need it, or do we look at what we already have and say, that's not enough, I need more? In both of those things, our eyes have shown us to be prideful. Humble eyes say, what do I really need at the core? And God, let me be content with that. So we're guarding our eyes against this idea that we need more than we really do. Which takes us down to verse 12. In verse 12, the eyes show up again. It says, there are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. This is, this is dangerous form of having a false view of yourself. This is a form of spiritual pride. This is the idea that I feel right before God, I think I'm okay before God, I think I'm clean, when in reality, I'm covered in sin. We think because we've done a couple of things or we had an experience as a kid or we're trying to go to church that that makes us right before God when in reality we know the only way we're made right before God is through Jesus Christ. And so if there is this idea in my life that I'm really clean, I'm really good when I'm not, this is what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that there are many who would call out and say, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, I never knew you. This idea of spiritual pride, thinking we're right with God when we're not. And we realize this is particularly pervasive in our part of the world because of people having a church background, because of this middle America idea um, of, of living in this location. So something we have to guard against. Then in verse 13, wrapping up this section about the eyes. Then in verse 13, there are those, how lofty are their eyes, how, I, how high their eyelids lift. 
This is the image we still use of having your nose stuck up in the air, uh, being a stuck up person. This is Proverbs language, but we would use that language in our day. So you're looking up, which means that you're never seeing the people who are most in need. If I'm always looking up, if I always have a high view of myself, if my nose is stuck in the air, I'm not going to be able to see the people who are most in need. The person who is humble is not the person who lives in humiliation. The person who is humble is the one who realizes that they are on the same path, the same standing before God as every other person. Just because we might have more, just because we might have more possessions, or more knowledge, or more church experience, doesn't somehow make us above, or a step above other people. We realize that we all come to God through Jesus Christ. So we recognize our human condition, we recognize God's power, we guard our mouth, we guard our eyes, but what does that look like when it happens? What's that picture of humility? Well, the picture of humility is found through Christmas. That's the reason it matters that we study this passage on the fourth Sunday of Advent is because the true picture of humility is seen in the birth of Jesus Christ. If you're turned off from religion because of the power and the pride that's involved, realize that that's not true religion. That is not true Christianity because we see in the birth of Jesus Christ the true picture of humility. And the beautiful thing about it is we see that humility played out through Jesus' mother, through Mary. At the beginning of the sermon, we read those verses for Luke. I want to show you a couple of the verses again as we get ready to wrap up. Verses 51 to 53, right in the middle of Mary's song, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Mary's song Christian humility turns on its head so many things that our culture values. In the book of Proverbs, women can get a bad rap. We saw in chapter 5 and chapter 7 and chapter 8 how there's the seductive woman that draws people aside. But don't forget, Proverbs also talks about lady wisdom a lot. And lady wisdom is personified at the end of Proverbs in Proverbs 31 with the industrious woman who cares for her household, who has a high standing in the community, who loves God, who loves others. But that picture is ultimately filled out through Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary, the mother of Jesus, in many ways is a picture of the lady wisdom from the book of Proverbs as we see that she realizes that she's just a servant. We realize, she realizes she doesn't have anything to bring to the table other than what God in his power wants to do through her, and so she trusts the Lord and she responds to him in obedience. So what is the product of humility in our life? What, is, what does it look like when God works this humility in our lives? Well, there's three things at the bottom of your notes, and we'll wrap up with these. What does it look like when humility takes root in my life? I'll be a person who worships God. In joy, I have joy before the Lord. I trust him, I have appropriate fear and reverence. If I'm a person of humility, I'll truly have the freedom to worship God because I realize that everything I have and everything I need comes from him. When I find myself in that position, I'll be a person who's contented. 
Jesus Christ has provided everything we need for life. When we are in Christ, we have perfect freedom, and the result of that is contentment. One of the gifts that we have at Christmas is that we have the opportunity, not in a holier-than-thou sort of way, but we have the opportunity to show the world what true contentment looks like. And as Christians, one of the most radical, countercultural things you can do is just be a person of peace during the holidays. Be a person who's not frantic, not grasping at things, not trying to get ahead, but just living a life of freedom, a life of joy, a life of peace, a life of contentment. And as a result of that, we're able to care for others. Not looking down on them, not speaking badly of them, but doing what God would call us to do and simply caring for others. So at Christmas and through the book of Proverbs, we find the path to humility, the picture of humility, and the products of humility, which is all well and good until we look into our own lives and say, Lord, what does that say about me? What does that say about my family? What does that say about our church? Would people look at us and say they worship God, they're content in Christ, and they truly care for others? May that be true of us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the story of Christmas. Thank you for the example of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Thank you for the example that we see, the complete picture of wisdom and humility that we see through Jesus Christ. Father, I've struggled this week seeing how much pride shows up in my life through the things I think about, through the things I say. And God, we realize that the path to humility is not four steps to have a better life. The path to humility is only found as we turn from our sins and trust fully in Jesus Christ. God, show us what it looks like to do that. Show us what it looks like to offer our lives fully to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.